Today's Your Stories is brought to you by Basecamp. When you use Basecamp to run projects, people know what to do, people know where things are, and you stay on top of everything all the time. Thanks, Basecamp. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi everybody, I'm Eric Garneau, and this is part two of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories Team Up with Shithole, featuring the theme Intention as chosen by our organizers and inspirations for the evening. Um, this is a really cool night that I think merged the spirits of Your Stories and the Shithole really well. On uh, this episode, we've got Claire Friedman, Charles Pettit, Grant Collins, Goodrich Gavart, Claire Swanson, and Chris Crotwell for your listening pleasure, plus a song from myself and that first Claire I mentioned, Claire Friedman. Uh, we're pretty much at the end of the Nerdalogs year here, which weirdly coincides with the end of the calendar. Calendar year. I don't know how that works. Uh, so let me just thank everybody who supported our projects in 2015. We put out a ton of podcasts, a handful of all new live shows, a freaking card game. It was uh, it was a year, man. Uh, and you all are the best, and we appreciate you very, very much. Uh, specific to this show, over the next couple Mondays, we'll be releasing our best of your stories episodes for 2015. This was really an incredible year for the show. I think our best yet. Uh, and you're going to hear some really great stuff, so be around for those. Uh, before we get into our last regular episode of 2015, let me again thank our sponsors, Basecamp, as well as the Chicago Podcast Co-op for setting it all up. The co-op is a wonderful thing we're really proud to be a part of. Uh, it has a featured page on iTunes where you can enjoy all the co-op shows, including a few others from the Nerdalogs. And if you're on iTunes and you like this show, it would be pretty nifty if you could rate and review us. Uh, it doesn't take much time, and it really, really, really helps podcasts a lot. So thank you so much for doing that, and please enjoy this show. And the theme tonight, as chosen by the Shithole Boys, is Intention, which I think is really great. So, I mean, we took this pretty... Literally, these are a bunch of songs where the artist is telling you what he or she is going to do. So, very deep, I understand. A lot of I wills. A lot, all, all three are I wills. Oh, yeah, they're all I wills. Alphabetically, they're like locker mates. Yeah. <laughs> all right, you ready? Yeah. At first I was afraid, I was petrified, kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. But then I spent so many nights just thinking how you did me wrong and I grew strong and I learned how to get along and now you're back from outer space. I just walked in to find you here with that sad look upon your face. I should have changed that stupid lock. I should have made you give the key if I had known for just one second. Be back to bother me or go now go walk out the door just turn around now cause you're not welcome anymore weren't you the one who tried to hurt me with goodbye you think I crumble you think I lay down and die oh no not I I will survive oh as long as I know how All my 
Shithole was so kind to do most of the booking for us tonight and get most of the audience. You guys are just so fucking great in Shithole. Thank you. But our first speak of the night is Homegrown. This is Claire Friedman. Eric, I have terrible news. Shithole sent me an email to book me. No! I'm so sorry. Um... So uh, my uh, story is going to be one of very recent importance to me. So this morning I got back from attending my grandmother's funeral uh, over in Iowa. And the funeral itself was yesterday. And um, excuse you, uh, we uh, drove back this morning. So uh, really what I wanted to do was just address a lot of the questions that people had about my grandmother, whom I know you all knew very well. Um, (laughs) Just people were just all night and the whole afternoon since I've been back, people have just been like, Janice, Janice, Janice. And I'm like, I get it. So I figure I have this time on stage. Uh, everyone wants to talk about Janice. And uh, I, so I'm just going to go through the questions that everybody has asked me and that way we can get them all out uh, really quickly. So the first question, uh, did she win? Which is obviously the most important question to her. And the answer is yes. Because she was 97, and Elner and John, her brother and sister, were only 95 and 92 when they died. Um, So she was not only the last surviving, but she was also the longest surviving. And so that was her one goal. So once she made it to 96, we knew that she was on her way out. Um, So, so, and I know this comes from the eulogy at the funeral that we were all at together. Uh, So how is it possible that she was 45 on Seth? Seth's, my cousin's, sixth birthday? Um, the answer is, of course, because she's a liar. She's a big liar. Um, that would have made her 61 when she died. So she, she was almost 70 when she said she was 45. Um, and he just believed it. And as he was 7 and 8 and 9, she, he just said, happy 46th birthday, happy 47th birthday. And she kept it going for years with no one, uh, no one being any the wiser. Um, for, and then the question that is really the most important for her. How did the morticians do? <laughs> pretty, pretty good. Pretty good, all things told. 
the mo- the really nice touch was they matched her nail polish to her rosary, which was really, really nice. I thought that was such a nice touch. I really did. Her eyebrows were drawn on perfectly. Her hair was styled right. Um, she never would have worn that sh- those two shirts together, let's be honest. But, you know, she wasn't there to say it, so somebody has to. Um, <laughs> And when, oh, and on the eyebrows, you know, when was the first time you saw her without her eyebrows on? Sunday. Uh, my brother and I had driven out to Iowa to go, you know, say our goodbyes because we knew that she was on our way out. Um, and she lost her eyebrows and eyelashes when she had scarlet fever when she was like three or four years old. So she hasn't had them. As a 97-year-old, I'm 26, so in 26 years I never saw her without perfect makeup, especially her eyebrows, until she was literally barely conscious in a hospital bed. That was the first time, and she would have been mortified if she knew. (laughs) So let's never mention that. But she did, they did a very good job. And on the, on, the, uh, on the point of funeral homes, why did you use Wirt's funeral home instead of Halligan McCabe? This has come up a lot. Um, <laughs> Halligan McCabe, of course, is like run by some second cousins or something like that. But apparently, in, her, in my grandmother's words, in Janice's words, uh, the last few funerals she went to there, she felt like they were measuring her. So... Um, <laughs> so she insisted we go to the other one. Um, and, like, as my cousin Katie put it, like, oh, my God, you've never been to a Wirtz funeral? They're so much better. So I think that's what she would have liked. Um, and a couple of you did notice, like, hello, yes, these are the earrings that she had in her coffin. Um, very, very nice. They were in her casket. Uh, and I have them on my, on my head now. Um, and, I mean, she had really specific instructions. She's had her funeral plan for 13 years. The tombstone's been in the ground for 14. It's fine. But uh, uh, that she was going to be in the coffin for the visitation wearing all of her jewelry, and then all of that jewelry would be given away to all of the female members of the family prior to her going into the ground. Um, uh, and so this was supposed to be in the coffin and then handed over to me. So I'm wearing them, of course, because otherwise I'll lose them immediately. Um <laughs> Did her fears about low funeral attendance come true? No. (laughs) It was the damnedest thing. You know, she was 97. She was always so afraid of being the last one to die so no one would come to her funeral. And uh, a lot of people wound up showing up. It was very nice. It was a very, very Iowa Catholic thing where every single uh, member of the state came to a 1030 a.m. on Wednesday funeral. Uh, Oh, another coffin question. What was her final height? We think around 4'6". <laughs> she kept insisting it was 4'6". I think she was still around 4'8". She'd been shrinking from 5'1 down for years and years. So, like, oh. let's just give her that one. She's 4'6", okay? Let's just <laughs> give her it. She's very proud. She's very proud. Um, what, and, you know, the last time I saw her, she was very small. She had, she had shrunk a lot. Um, and we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, her life and things. And the question came up a couple times there, and I'm sure here again. Um, how many times was she, was, it, was she engaged? Four. She was engaged four times. One of those was my grandfather. Um, the other three, she, again, in her words, had no intention of ever marrying. Um, which begs the question, what were you doing to those poor men? Um, one of them, she took the engagement ring and she sold it for $35. <laughs> we don't know who the second one was. The third one, she didn't marry because he was a mama's boy. <laughs> um, and she especially illustrated that by saying, he was such a mama's boy. His mother came to me and made me gave, give the engagement ring back. And we said, Janice, of course they did. That's what you're supposed to do. You broke off an engagement. You give the ring back. You don't sell it to a pawn shop. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Crazy woman. Uh, We did find out the name of one of those paramours, though, because it was on the return address of an envelope that she got that she had saved from when she was living in L.A. Why was she living in L.A.? Why did she leave? We have no idea. We'll never know. Um, She was there for six months, stayed with her aunt. I now have the address. So I'm going to go visit it the next time I'm there. But we will literally never know why she left and then returned to small town Iowa from Los Angeles. Where is her wedding ring? We don't know. Maybe stuck in the couch. We're trying to find it. Uh, are you taking the hutch? This is, this is mostly for my dad. I don't know. I'm being really indecisive about it. I don't know how to get it back here. I don't know where to put it. But it's just so pretty. I feel like I should take it. Um... <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, what were her last words to you? Okay, this one's a little harsh, but to be fair, she said it to every single relative of mine for the last five years as we were leaving her uh, her housing complex. Uh, her last words to me were, the next time you see me, I'll be dead. Oh. Um, <laughs> she said that for five years. It was like... We know. Like, maybe you won't, and we'll have another surprise visit where you'll, like, just still be around. Just still cracking. Uh, she was ready to die. Um, uh, no, it's fine, you guys. Uh, she's 97 years old. It's fine. Uh, what were your last words to her? I like this question. This is much better because, it, you know, by the time that we did see her last, we figured it would be our last time. So the last things that I said to my grandmother, Janice uh, Margaret Reynolds, was, uh, I love you and stay out of trouble. Which is true. I love her a lot. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. Man, so uh, Claire not only made the show tonight, but also uh, made our show Sunday here. Uh, two marathon drives back just to do the show. Thank you so much. Five people in the, un- uh, in the audience will understand why I'm saying this, but I hope that five of you think this is funny as I did when she said it to me. Your stories is bad for grandmas. <laughs> All right. So if you guys knew me two years ago, you get where I'm going with that. Anyway, coming up next, uh, we're starting the chain of speakers at the shithole. Br- Don't be sad. It's cool. It's cool. <laughs> Everything's happy. We're having a great night. Coming up first, Charles, Charles Pettit, everybody. We've all worked shitty jobs, haven't we? In this coterie of Chicago artists that we find ourselves in this evening, I'm sure that each of the main vein of shitty jobs, we have at least one attache in attendance. The au pairs, the mixologists, the coupon slingers, the card crafters, and even the canine exercise facilitators. Tutors, valets, sous chefs, maybe even the fucking business consultants. Whatever I gotta do to keep the lights on is probably something we've said at some point in our lives. And listen, as if you weren't already listening. I'm not here to make you feel bad about your job, or your house, or your fuck trophies. Kids, or that person that you convinced to lay down next to you at night and swallow spiders while you sleep. No, tonight my story's intention, wink, is to let you know that we all have the same thoughts and dreams and feelings because we're all people voluntarily living in a city that, for all we know, could have inspired Batman's ice-themed villain, Dr. Fucking Freeze. If you can't tell by my clothes, haircut, or voice, or voting record, I am 26 years young. I graduated from an all-boys school in Chattanooga, Tennessee, way back in 2007. The day I arrived back home to Shreveport, Louisiana, I told my proud parents that my last summer before college I wanted to play Halo 2 and get drunk with my best good friends I had had since third grade. That was the same day that my dad told me to get a job. Being the arrogant 18-year-old that I was, I said, fine! (laughs) (laughs) Well, a day or two later, I still hadn't sent out any job applications. Oops. (laughs) In my defense, the Cinemark Cinema's application's hard to fill out after you play Big Lebowski drinking game all night. (laughs) Now, for those of you listening at home... That's when you drink every time someone in the movie says, dude, or fuck. (laughs) If you still don't understand the severe nature of this kind of underage binge drinking, you're probably in the wrong place. And looking for Mark Maron's podcast on his cat's cancer and being a sad old white man who can never be happy with his or anyone else's successes. (laughs) 
Anywho, luckily, my dad saved my summer from unemployment when he got me a job working in oil field construction. Yay! <clears throat> Manual labor is fun. Well, maybe fun's not the right word. Uh, virile. <laughs> unpretentious. Surprisingly lucrative. These are words I would use to describe being aroused about or a roughneck in the field of inland oil field construction. It was the first and only time I have ever taken a piss test for a job that I miraculously passed. <laughs> 4.30 a.m., rolling out of bed into some jeans and a white T-shirt, steel-toed boots and a hard hat, a brown paper bag with a sad sandwich and two Gatorades for lunch. Actually, I did have that for lunch yesterday. But the best part about working this job was that I had my best friend from elementary school there to work it with me. And his name is Jeff. And at that point in our lives, we'd gotten really good at Halo 2. I mean... <laughs> Uh, he was better than me, but we really crushed Team Slayer, man. Like, he actually got to be a level 48, which, um, is probably why his parents suggested that he also work this job with me. Um, so we set up and took down natural gas compressor units and 150, uh, 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 um, Humidity, thank you very much. <laughs> it was heat index sometimes was in the 120s. It was North Louisiana. It's not a, that's how it is there. Um, we maintained some older properties, basically did the shitty jobs our coworkers didn't want us to do because we were the new guys. You know, we waded through man-made ponds to skim the oil that sat on top of the wastewater. One day I laid ground pipe during a lightning storm. We were safe, and so was the environment, okay? It was 2007. The inconvenient truth had only been out for a year. <laughs> then there were days, you know, when we'd spend hours in the car traveling to and from our locations, listening to our bosses reminisce about the bar fights they had gotten into the weekend before. One time our uh, supervisor for the day finally reflected on his love affair with smoking methamphetamine. <laughs> That's crystal meth for those of you playing along at home. We learned a lot about people and what kind of a person it takes to do a job like that. You know, we worked 60 to 90 hours a week uh, and got a shit ton of overtime. And it was actually the most money I've ever held. And... I actually kind of started to like the job, mostly the money. At the end of our eighth week, uh, Jeff and I were loading up the Honda Accord, and he started talking about his girlfriend. Her name is Georgia. And uh, they dated all through high school. And, and that Monday, she was actually uh, with five of her best girlfriends going down to their family's beach house in Sandestin, Florida. And we laughed and joked about how cool it would be to go to Florida and actually, like, hang out with girls instead of, like, messed up crazy rednecks. <laughs> Man, it was so cool. <laughs> but when Monday came, I picked him up from his house at 441 like I always did. And we went to our neighborhood's McDonald's for their sausage biscuit deal like we always did. Ooh. And when we were in line between the order window and the pay window... I turned down the Bob and Tom show and looked over at Jeff, and I was like, man, how crazy would it be if we went to Florida right now, right? <laughs> he did not hesitate. He said, dude, I already packed. And I looked him dead in the eye, and I said, me too. <laughs> I don't think it was ever our intention, wink, to go to work that day. I think we were just too afraid to quit. Uh, all we needed was, like, the tiniest bit of reassurance and some McDonald's breakfast biscuit. We drove at 4.50 all the way from North Louisiana to West Florida, and we got to the beach 
as the sun was setting. And I can tell you right now that I have never since in my life been drunker on a beach <laughs> than I was in 2007 in Sandestin, Florida. <laughs> Worth the wait. Thank you, Charles. Thank you so much. Uh, this is a good time for me to let you guys in on like the one your story's house rule we have. If you say the name of the, or the theme of the night in your story, which is encouraged, please point to the sky. I can't tell you why, but it's very important that you do that. It is my sincerest intention that you do so. So yeah, some practice for y'all. Coming up next to the stage, Grant Collins. I'm probably going to be pointing to the ceiling a lot. So I'm glad I know. Oh, when I first heard the theme intention, um, I, I wrote this diatribe on my computer, and it sounded like a sermon. Of course, I come from a, the deep south in the Bible Belt, and I thought about being a priest for a preacher, not a priest in the south, a preacher for a while. So I spared you all, and I deleted that immediately, and uh, was like, man, what do I think about when I hear intention? And uh, I thought about. Your sitcom dads, like, what's what's your intention with my daughter? And uh, it got me thinking, like, how many dads I had to deal with down south when I was starting out dating. And I never got that exact speech or that question because I don't know what I would have said at 15, 16, 17 year old, years old anyway because who has intentions at that age except <laughs> the main few intentions you have at that age. But uh, I got to thinking about all the dads I've met. And um, I was like, let's visit some of those dads. And down south, um, my first like serious girlfriend, her father was uh, a preacher, Church of Christ, which I grew up First Baptist. And I, don't you, I don't know if you know what that means, but that means they both think the other group's going to hell, uh, even <laughs> even if um, you're going to church and doing everything right, the other group's still wrong. Which my father and mother are Church of Christ and First Baptist, so it's a real Romeo Juliet thing going on <laughs> in my family. Uh, it worked out because not they don't go to church anymore anyway. Um, but I would alternate between my grandparents, and I would hear how my other grandparents were going to hell every other Sunday. So that kind of screwed me over a little bit. But uh, I went, to, <laughs> I went, I went, I, I met Katie through uh, church camp as you do, and I went and met. Uh, I went to her church for the first time, and I didn't know it was some kind of like big Church of Christ get together. Like, all the Church of Christ from the towns around came in, and you put your name on a tag, and you put where you went to church. And I wrote First Baptist, Portland, Tennessee, <laughs> and uh, I didn't really think anything about it at the time. But uh, sermon was pretty hardcore on those First Baptist kids going to hell. <laughs> and then I walked up, and I was like, "Excuse me, sir, I'm Grant. I'm dating Katie." And then everyone I met that day looked down and. Just changed their faces a little bit. But we dated for a while, and that was fine. He never asked me uh, my intentions. But uh, soon after that, I met a girl from a few towns over. She wasn't a preacher's daughter. Uh, she was a little bit younger, but her dad lived out in the woods in a cabin he built by hand. Um, actually, it was his job. He went around taking old cabins and turning them into new cabins. Uh, which That's a very lucrative job down south. Um, I'm from Portland, Tennessee, by the way, which is uh, about, at the time, 9,000 people. You from there? No. Um, very small place. Uh, so I met this guy for the first time. I'd been on a few dates with his daughter. And I walked into the cabin, and there was every knife and gun he owned spread across the tables in the living room, everywhere else. And he was polishing, sharpening, cleaning every single part of it. And uh, I owned a few guns, so I sat down and helped him. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't scared. <laughs> I wasn't scared. I don't know if it was on purpose or if he just happened to be the day he decided to clean all those things. But uh, I didn't. He also never asked me my intentions. But I think I knew his. Um, after that, I went to the wild side a little bit and dated this girl from my high school. That was, you know, I was goody two shoes, and uh, she was. I don't know what you want to call that. She had fun in high school instead of being boring like I was. Um, so we went out on a date. And she kept looking at her uh, phone, which back then was like a little thing with buttons and a green screen, and that's all it did. But I was wondering what was going on. And by the end of the date, we went to go-karts and uh, miniature golf. Uh, she finally told me that she was on 
I don't, I don't, I don't know what you call it, but basically on parole, what you, the version of that in high school, where you had to check in with your, the whatever officer ever so often, and she was embarrassed, so she didn't do it. So now they were looking for her. Um, <laughs> so I took her home, and uh, I, she lived down. I'm gonna call it the boonies, which is uh, or a holler. Which is where you actually drive you, you drive your car down elevation because it's down inside of a hauler, um, not in a low cab in a trailer, and uh, nothing nothing against that, but that's where she lived. And uh, I didn't walk her to her door because I was like, man, she's in trouble probably. I'm gonna sit here and wait to make sure she gets to her door, that which is right there. But I'm not I'm not gonna get out because maybe I have to. Maybe she wants me to kiss her there, or her dad thinks I want to kiss her there at the door. I'm just gonna sit in my car. So I did, and she got in safely, and I drove home. By the time I got home, I got a phone call, and it was her dad, and he was so mad that I did not walk her to the door that night. He berated me for 30 minutes on the phone about how I was not a gentleman for not walking his daughter to the door, and I just took it all. Um, my parents weren't home because later I told my mom, and she's like, I would have said something, but I just took that. Uh, I took that, and I think it shaped who I am now. You know, I always walk a girl to the door. Except in, the, except in the city, because that's kind of weird. Especially if you don't live at the same stop at all. It's like, well, I'm going to go out of my way and walk you home. There's no... I'm not expecting anything, but it's kind of weird, right? Um, <laughs> but I didn't learn my lesson, and I dated another preacher's daughter a few years later. Guys, I, I've i mentioned four girls so far. It's not like I'm some Lothario or something, okay? We've all dated at least four people. Um, but this is another preacher's daughter, and she was like the general Baptist, and maybe the, the, the Baptist of the first or something. It's a little, they're like, they're at the normal church, and then they decided that's too hardcore for what they want to do, and they remove themselves, and that church grows, and they remove themselves, and that church grows, and they remove themselves. So you don't know what you're going to get when you walk in. So I walk in, there's a praise band, nothing wrong with that. I didn't grow up with one, but there's like electric guitars and drums, and everyone's got those uh, Britney Spears mics, like... Everybody does. Um, and uh, her mother was the organ. Well, it was like a keyboard. And uh, she sang with her mother, and her father was the preacher. And it was right after Katrina, so we'll date this. Um, and, man, he had a dream the night before that the world was ending. God told him that the world was over, and it was it was time. Like in the next two weeks, the world was done. Um, it was time to get saved and get right with the Lord because the world was over. So this is my first Sunday in that church, first time I met him, too. And I'm sitting on the front row with her, and I'm hearing this uh, hellfire and damnation. And at least he's not picking on any other denominations. It's just the world in general is over. Uh, so it's done. And I've been to a few churches like this before where they have the altar call, which in a normal church is like you sing um, uh, some, like some song, and everyone's like, oh, do you feel the need in your heart to come up and turn yourself over to the Lord today? If you feel that deep in your heart, join us as we sing. That's pretty normal. But this is like, I promise you today, today the world is over. You come up here. And the whole church went up there and was lying on the ground on the altar, just crying, <laughs> crying in a pile, man. Like, they were all touching and like, oh, Jesus. And I was sitting in the front row, and I was just like, I don't, I'm not getting up. <laughs> I made the decision. I was like, I'm not getting up there. I'm sorry. And then the final, I sit there for a while, and then they're just on the ground. And, like, the mom's up there wailing on the keyboard, like, cranking it out. And she finally gets up and comes up to me. And she just walks up, and she goes, Grant, are you saved? And she had a little Britney Spears mic, and it projected all over the church. And I said, <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and I was. But, uh... <laughs> So, no, I didn't uh, ever get asked the, uh, what are your intentions? I didn't ever get that speech, but I do feel like I went through the ringer just a few times growing up in the South and dating. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Grant. Exemplary storytelling, exemplary pointing. Let's all take that lesson to heart. Coming up next to the stage, Goodrich Gavart. Hi, everybody. Um, if you've never seen me perform before, I'm very funny. Uh, I say that, trust me, because I don't think this is going to be funny at all. And that's something we're both going to work through, okay? Uh, so uh, when I was uh, in second grade, my mom uh, decided to take me from the school that I was going to 
And I think uh, just out of nowhere, she's like, oh, yeah, next week when you go to school and your sister goes to school, she's two years younger than me, you're going to be going to a different school, uh, just as a heads up. Uh, and I think her her intention was like it's a magnet school for theater arts, and my sister loved to act, and I went to like the country public school by her house. And this was a mostly black school in the city, uh, and I, which I mean, now made me in retrospect, I'm like the first gentrifier. Like I'm like in before you guys gentrified. Like I went to like you know a school of minorities with gang member brothers and sisters before you guys you know moved to Pilsen. So, um, <laughs> but what happened? In that, in retrospect, the first day of school, I shit my pants. Uh, oh my god, you guys have no idea what's coming next. <laughs> You're gonna whine so much more, it's gonna be delightful. So, uh, I, uh, my instinct was to just not be noticed. Uh, it wasn't to like go clean myself up, it wasn't to tell someone, it was just to try to be ignored. So the first, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to be ignored with your sweatpants full of (laughs) hot, wet feces. It's difficult. I was pretty good at it. But, but not good enough for the entire day because at about 2.45, a couple of girls turned to me and said, hey, (laughs) you smell like Dookie. We're going to call you Dookie Boy. (laughs) Nice work. Good call. That is exactly what you should do in that scenario. I understand. Uh, I went home. I didn't tell my parents. I cleaned up myself, threw my underwear outside. I didn't want anyone to notice me. I didn't want to get yelled at. I didn't want to get noticed. The next day... I shit my pants. Again. I don't know if I should go through every day and get a laugh every time or jump ahead and say I shit myself every day till fifth grade. No. Yes. Um... (laughs) Yeah, in, okay, so what that's called, it's called incapricis. It's like an actual disease that I didn't know about till I was 27. Uh, but it turns out when children are faced with a thing that they don't care for, sometimes instead of like acting out in certain ways, they will express their displeasure by shitting themselves. <laughs> that's apparently the rare breed of thing that I did. Uh, but what it bred in me was this, the need to always be Invisible. Uh, all I wanted to do was not get ignored. It's not get noticed because anytime anyone noticed me, it was because they were mad at me because I had poop in my pants. And let me tell you from experience, it's not fun. They're not wrong. It's not good. Uh, but what I would do instead of the way my brain worked was that I didn't know why I did it. I just know it happened every day. So I just conceived these scenarios and like skill set that I would try to use to fool everyone around me. So in second grade, already four minutes, oh my god, I just got, oh, this is so gross. So I, I'll try to keep this brief. So basically, at, in, in fourth, in second grade, I like had this hyper sense of everyone around me's uh, like reactions to me and so I only became really good at being ignored and like focusing on everyone else around me and being able to like sort of play all of their social cues in a very heightened way that children probably shouldn't be really good at uh, so so I would like economize all my movements like I figured out like the more I moved the more like have you seen the peanuts like pig pen has like stink lines so like in my head like the less I move the less stink lines would come out and the less I would get yelled at I mean peanuts it, learning tool so <laughs> Uh, the less I would be yelled at for being uh, a dookie boy. So I I did this at a very young age. And then uh, about sixth grade, I stopped shooting my pants. And then it turns out I had Tourette's syndrome for about seven years, which is not fun. Uh, you guys have seen TV before. It's on there, and that's what happens. And then from about 18 to 27, I had so much depression and anxiety that I'd never dealt with that I, like, never left the house, and uh, I was just afraid of being attacked and uh, hurt all the time. Uh, so it's weird because my 
my intention was to fix the situation when I was a child, yet now I'm 31 and I am pretty unable to like feel like people make me happy. Like I'm more into being ignored except for this scenario where I'm in charge and you're all looking at me, which I love so much. It's really validating. Uh, but, but I wonder, like, will I ever have a relationship with a partner who will make me happy in and of themselves? Uh, because I just don't know if I've felt that the way other people feel that. And I'm really worried that I only want to be alone and ignored except for when I'm in charge. And that's what I have to deal with the rest of my life, which sucks because I've worked at so many things and I still have fucking homework. Life is a scam. Uh, okay, I think I'll be done. Thank you so much. Thank you, Goodrich. Man, it gets, it gets real up here sometimes. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. All right, coming up next to the stage, we have a poet, Claire Swanson. Right? No, you're not the poet. I'm sorry. You are Claire Swanson. I am not a poet. Oh, I shouldn't touch that. Um, okay. A lot of my poetry is just slamming things around. So, um... I, uh... So, the theme is intention, and, um... So, I... Most of you guys have probably seen me perform. Half of you probably know that I have a lot of weight loss material. A lot of my life has been about losing weight. I lost 180 pounds um, like two years ago, and I've gained some of it back because like, I'm a fucking human, you know? <laughs> and the thing... The thing about it that sucks so bad is, is like, it's so visual to everyone around you. Like, cause it's a, it's, I'm addicted to like sugar. And like, um, people that are addicted to alcohol, you don't like go like, she's back on the wagon all the time, you know? But like, you're like, she's eating a lot of cupcakes again. <laughs> Somebody must have heard her. Um, <laughs> and, but it's true. So like, um, so I like I'm back onto it, but but that's the thing is it's like our whole life is like learning who we are and like why we do things. So like I'm fucking figuring out this food thing still, but it, it's hard, man. Um, I have uh, some hot bits that I could do, but I could also just like talk about it. Uh, who knows what we're gonna do for the next three and a half minutes? I don't know how much time I've done. Um, but like the thing is, is like. People will ask you, they'll be like, what's your goal way? What do you want to be? And I'm just like, whatever it is that if I walk into a bar and no guy likes me, it's because of my shitty personality. (laughs) What number is that? That's the number I want. That's what I want. Like, how, how do we get there? And like, I, I've had to change so much of my life for like food stuff. Like, I had to wa- stop watching SVU and the news and like, because I'll just, I'll be like, well, let's eat my feelings for the world. <laughs> like, what's happening in Syria? Why don't we have cake right now? <laughs> let's get all the cake right now. That'll help those refugees. Um, if they had it, it might, but I'm just shoving it down my face. And the other thing about like having a weight issue is this, like people don't want to think about it as like an addiction. And I, I kind of get it because it's so like, uh, uh, it's so okay in our society, whereas, like, shooting up in a restaurant isn't. But, like, I, and, like, I can't, I, I'm not, I'm never, my mom's never going to find me on the floor because I ate too many Cheetos. But, like, I'll lose feet one day, you know? Like, <laughs> so it's a real disorder. And I'm, I'm also trying to lose weight while pursuing comedy and trying to date, and it's just, like, the worst. It's like trying to repair your fighter jet mid-battle. Every every time you think you have something solved, like a bullet comes from the other thing that you're not working on right now. So, but then, but then, part of me is like, oh, I'm so. People will be. Uh, I, I'll let everyone down because I've gained weight back. Like, anyone fucking cares. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I don't know if I want to go to that show. They'll see I've gained weight again. Who fucking cares? And if you care, fuck you. You know what I mean? (laughs) 
Um, is someone keeping time? No. All right, I'll end up. I'll end on. I'll, can can I end on a laugh instead of? Is someone keeping time? Um, uh, but so I've been seeing a therapist, and she thinks I'm very funny. So get on board. Um, and one of the things we're working on with all this food stuff is also, um, like, what I want in a man. Like, I'm trying to date, and it's so fucking hard. And she's like, make a list of 100 things you want, and uh, or make a list of what you want. And I, I made a list of 100, and I'm very hopeful he'll have all of them. <laughs> but I'll tell you three tonight. Um, so this is my intention for a man, okay? Uh, one, I want a guy that, like, loves his mom, you know what I mean? And then no other woman but me... <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> I want him to see a woman on the street and be like they make them that way Ew. <laughs> uh, ew. <laughs> no thank you um I also I really want a man who uh, is just a little bit dumb <laughs> just a tiny bit <laughs> just dumb enough to fuck well that's what I'm looking for Cause I've been, I've been with a lot of smart men that are too up here and it's like, come on, I gotta go watch SVU. <laughs> Let's wrap it up. So just a little bit dumb. And then, um, my, my last, this is my last thing and I don't think it's that big of a deal, but some people think it is. Like, I either want a man that needs a, well, he can do neither of these things, but I can't have both. Either he can use a CPAP machine or he's taller than me. <laughs> But I'm not a saint. I can't do both. You guys, thank you so much. Thank you, Claire. Thank you so much. Guys, we have one more storyteller this half. Uh, so this is this is someone from the Your Stories Caruso. Your Stories All Star. He's been telling stories for four of the five years that we've been a thing. And also today is his 30th birthday. So please yeah. give a big round of applause for Chris Crotwell. So, uh, yeah, I, I turned 30 today, and it's not every day you roll over the odometer that way, reset that first digit to zero, uh, and it's a time for a little bit of introspection. You look back, you think about things you can pull into your life moving forward with a little bit of intention this year, a little bit of purpose, um, but I'm a children's librarian, and my core demo is very small people, <laughs> and so I spent most of the day thinking about the last time... My age started with three when I was three. Uh, you got to think about, like, when you're three, you've had object permanence for just one year, right? Just around a year, which means just over a year ago, when things were outside of your visual field, they fucking disappeared. Anything you couldn't see did not exist, right? That's amazing. You might think kids laugh at patty cake because it's funny, but it's not. It's fucking terrifying. Your mom's face just turned into hands. Her face is made of hands. That's not a ha-ha laugh. That's a beating back the madness laugh. They're just trying not to spiral away before they can form full sentences. But three-year-olds are in a space where they're starting to figure things out a little bit, you know? But they have no fucking idea what's going on. It's frustrating, and it's a little bit scary. And that is the point where I relate to them hugely. <laughs> the world is majorly baffling. I have no fucking idea what's going on. Um, right after your three, you spend these several decades building up this wall of certainty to try to buffer that, but that's all bullshit. And once you get to a certain age, you realize that again. But there's a thing that three-year-olds can do well that I don't think most of us can. If adults are emotionally constipated, toddlers have emotional diarrhea. They experience everything immediately and in full force and quickly. Like If they're upset, they lose their fucking shit for like five minutes and they just empty the tank. Right? It is just soul-rending gnashing of teeth for like five minutes, but then it's over. You know? And I'm a little envious of that. 
Because I don't cry anymore. It's not like I never cry. It's like I'll be on the CTA and a part of This American Life will make me get misty. But that's just like a wet emotional fart. There's no, like, there's no relief involved in that at all. I don't know where that button is anymore, you know, to just, like, get weepy. And I don't think you should have emotional diarrhea all the time. I work in public service. If someone came up to me and said, can you help me print some pay stubs? And I just went, no! (laughs) And just had, like, a primal yell and then broke a keyboard on their face. I'd be fired. That's not cool. But I would be able to, like, get really weepy when I need to. I don't know where that button is. Pixar does. But they make me... They make me pay for the privilege, and they only release, like, two movies a year. So that's not getting it done. Um, I don't know how to get back to that space, and I don't think that it's entirely necessary, you know? Like, I don't want to just be a fucking mess all the time. I don't want Shelby to be like, let's go get groceries, and I just lay down on the floor and go, No! I'm hungover! Fuck you! (laughs) Because that's not, we can't behave that way. But it would be nice to have a little bit more access, you know. So I guess what I'm recommending, at the risk of encouraging a bunch of people who might not be that stable already to vacillate wildly from one extreme to the other, is, uh, I don't know, break some plates. Uh, just... To weep in front of strangers for no reason. Not every day, but I think what I'm saying is go get diarrhea. <laughs> Emotional diarrhea. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Chris. We had emotional diarrhea and actual diarrhea. Your Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you like your stories, try Tight Pencils. Tight Pencils is a show that explores the process of making art. Matt and Kevin sit down with a maker, cartoonist, painter, or designer to find out about their work and what inspires them to create. For more info, go to tightpencils.com. This has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com. Thank you all, thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.